We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 216. Our guest today is the executive director of the Secretariat Center, which is located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a mission to prepare off-track thoroughbreds for happy, healthy, and successful post-track careers by rehabilitating and giving them a broad-based foundation of skills to really ensure that harmonious match with their adopters to kind of have that second job and second home. The Secretariat Center is right in the Kentucky Horse Park, so not only is it a great space, 20 acres for these thoroughbreds to really get trained up, rehabilitated, and rehomed, but it also is a great opportunity for a lot of tourists and people who are coming in for other reasons for the Kentucky Horse Park to be able to learn more and be a part of the Secretariat Center's journey. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Shelly Mann. I feel like this is a topic that so many people are intrigued by, but people don't know a ton about. So um, you are the executive director for the Secretariat Center, um, which is amazing. I would just love to hear a little bit about the Secretariat Center. But first, how did you kind of first find yourself in the equestrian world and become involved with the center? Finding myself in the equestrian world, that was a, a rather diverse track. I started out as a six-year-old horse-crazy kid in a non-horse family Mm. um, and begged and begged for riding lessons. And so when I had a birthday, my parents got me 10 riding lessons at a local farm for... um, for my birthday. And they have still said that that was the worst investment they ever made. I was going to say that was their, that was their big mistake. <laughs> yeah. They didn't realize that was the gateway drug. Um, but it, it actually has, has worked out great. They told me when I went to college, I was not allowed to do anything with horses because there was no money in it. So um, I ended up with a, a, a biology degree and um, was still riding and pretty much have had a, a variety of um, horse-related jobs throughout my career. So it has kind of led me, when when I was in sixth grade, I announced that I was moving to Lexington, Kentucky, and um, everybody, my whole family thought I was crazy. And um, it took until college, but I have been here ever since. So I, I do love the bluegrass area. Yeah, what was the draw um, as early as sixth grade that that you like knew you wanted to end up in Lexington? I really think it, it was the horses. It was the um, the culture. The it's very horse centric here. Everything kind of revolves around thoroughbreds. It's always interesting to me to meet people in Lexington that don't have horses and don't don't work in the horse industry because they're they're kind of the minority in this area. And um, and so it's nice to be able to invite them out and give them a little bit of an education on the history of the area and the important role that horses have really played in Kentucky. Did you grow up riding in English disciplines? I did. I actually, just accidentally, because of course my parents just randomly bought riding lessons for me. 
I ended up at a fox hunting barn. So I kind of grew up being that kid that would help get horses ready for the fox hunt and then get riding lessons afterwards and, and, and always kind of around that. When I turned 16, I had saved up enough money to go buy a car and I came home with a horse. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit, because obviously, while you were growing up, while I was growing up, the prevalence of thoroughbreds within the English discipline were a lot higher. And it's become less and less with the rise of popularity of European imports, warm bloods, especially in kind of my world of the hunter-jumper discipline. Is that the same for fox hunting or what does that look like? Um, Is there still a lot of thoroughbreds within the group of horses? I think they maybe um, fell from favor a little bit with the introduction of the warm bloods and the draft horse crosses and that sort of thing. Um, I grew up at a fox hunting barn, but it didn't take long for me to move into the hunter-jumpers and equitation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that there was definitely a time where thoroughbreds or people felt that thoroughbreds weren't as competitive in some of the English discipline arenas. And it's pretty amazing that it's kind of come full circle and now they're becoming much more popular again. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And I think it's been, you know, there's specific divisions and classes and projects that I feel like are doing a really nice job of highlighting the quality uh, that a lot of thoroughbreds have and that they're still can be a very, um, very like useful and very competitive. And um, I know growing up riding thoroughbreds and off the track thoroughbreds, the, while it might have been a sometimes challenging journey, you know, for, for me, I was a little kid with an off the track thoroughbred chestnut mare who like fully lived up to the stereotype. And um, it was a challenge. It was like the trifecta of challenges. (laughs) (laughs) But the amount of heart that she had is something that I feel like is that kind of secret weapon quality that thoroughbreds have that warm bloods don't sometimes. And so I think there's a lot of really cool aspects to thoroughbreds that I feel like the industry is starting to kind of reintroduce and highlight more and more through different like organizations and programs and, and things like the Secretariat Center. So tell me a little bit about your role at the center and how you found yourself being a part of this center. So um, the the center was actually established in 2004 and um, and became a 501c3 standalone in 2012. So we were kind of originally under the umbrella of the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. Okay, um, and then it became our own I, our own entity, so so to speak, in 2012. Um, we're located on the Kentucky Horse Park. We have approximately 20 acres of paddocks. We have a 10-stall barn, an outdoor arena, a round pen, a Hitchcock pen. We have a small cross-country course. And at any time, we tend to have between 10 and 20, although my trainer would like me to keep it closer to 10 to 15, (laughs) thoroughbreds in all different phases of training, um, all of which are available for adoption throughout their time here. Amazing. And Tell me a little bit about what kind of like what a normal day looks like for you at the Secretariat Center. 
Um, that is the million dollar question. I don't think there is a normal day. And that's part of what I love about this job. It's, it's funny because I'll have a day where it is just filled with all sorts of interesting things from a podcast to um, an adopter visit. Um, just before I talked to you earlier today, we adopted out a horse to a second time adopter. So, mm. um, it's, it's, there's always something rewarding going on. Yesterday, we got a new horse in, and later today, I'm going to the other side of town and looking at two horses that um, are potentially coming to the center. So it's, it's very, it's very varied. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of fundraising. And so most of our horses, we don't want them to have to support themselves you know, this is their time to be retrained and Mm -hmm. to find new homes. And so we do a lot of fundraising and event hosting. Um, We host tourists on the property. We work with some organizations within the community to host events so that we raise awareness and hopefully raise funds without the horses necessarily having to do that. It helps us better find the perfect match for the horse and not necessarily have to worry about the the fees and and that sort of thing. So we try to keep our, our adoption fees as low as possible to help find the perfect home for those horses. Yeah, what do you what do you mean by thoroughbred aftercare? Um, can you can you give me the rundown of what that looks like and why is it important? Aftercare really refers to the care, the retraining, and the rehoming of a racehorse once he leaves the racetrack. Okay. The thoroughbred industry and the thoroughbred aftercare alliance kind of help make horses safely transition from the racetrack. So they kind of, the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance kind of bridges the gap between the thoroughbred industry and the aftercare industry. We, we, what we want is for horses not to end up in unwanted, poor situations where they're not being properly cared for or where some of their previous training isn't understood and therefore carries over into their, their new careers. If we're kind of talking about, let's say, a season of racing in, you know, in the Lexington, Kentucky area, after a season is over, what does that look like as far as number of horses that are either, you know, getting sold or otherwise? How How is that dynamic? Is there like certain times of the year where you have a higher influx because of the racing season? I would like to say yes, because that would make um, our numbers a little more dependable. But sometimes I know I have people call and say, I'm going to have a horse for you in three months. And I have some people who call and say, can it come today? Yeah. So it just kind of depends on the needs of the horses um, and what their background is and where they're coming from. I really like to be able to see the horses beforehand, but I have a lot of people who send horses that have been sending horses for years. Sure. And they know what we need to be able to to be able to rehome those horses. So the, typically we are lucky in that because our horses all come into the program with the goal of having a second career, 
we can't necessarily accept all horses. So we have to be a little picky with only 20 acres. So, so we, yes, we, we try to work mm-hmm. with other organizations so that if somebody calls and they have a horse that doesn't fit into the program, um, a 20 year old horse that has been a broodmare for the last 17 years, she doesn't necessarily need or want to have a second career. Yeah. Um, you know, she just needs a soft landing. And so we try to work with people that if the horses don't fit into the Secretariat Center program, that we try to give them options so that they can safely rehome those horses with um, a TAA accredited organization that will help oversee their their continued care into their kind of golden years. So obviously you're working with horses that you think would be almost like a good ambassador for the breed. Um, So I feel like that's also a big part of what you do at the Secretariat Center, but obviously ones that would have that successful second career. Where, Where do you usually find, is there like a specific division or discipline avenue that you find that your horses go to or, and then what are some qualities that you are kind of alluding to before that you really look for when having a horse be like a perfect fit for your program? The nice thing is that we don't have to be discipline specific. We have some that are doing Western trail riding. We have some that are successful in therapy programs. Um, We have one that is currently at the Kentucky Horse Park Parade of Breeds, and yeah. he is one that is kind of um, he, he's, he's educating about what the what the the breed can do after the racetrack. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a competitive discipline. Um, we have several that have gone on to the Retired Racehorse Project if they qualify with mm-hmm. their new adopters or even with our staff members. So we really try to treat each horse as an individual and look for an area that the horse will be successful in. Obviously, the easier they are to be around, the, the more trainability they have, the more sound that they are when they retire, the easier our job is. But at the same time, we have adopters who are looking for all different qualities within horses and it makes it nice for us to be able to find horses careers that that are maybe kind of outside of what you would normally think of. I mean sure we have lots of horses that go on to successfully venting careers and and hunters and jumpers and equitation um, that sort of thing. It's it's very rewarding to see them go on to do that, but it's also very rewarding for a horse to move into a therapy program and be able to help either kids with with some sort of challenge or mm-hmm. with soldiers working through PTSD, that sort of thing. So it is. It, they, they certainly can have rewarding careers without necessarily always having to have a competitive career. Totally. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you hear that people may have about off-the-track thoroughbreds? I think a lot of people think that they are all hot-headed, high-strung, dangerous. They can be difficult to handle or spooky, maybe not necessarily a beginner or a first-time horse type situation. A lot of times we're told that they don't have good feet, that they can be hard keepers, that their race connections don't care about them. And I think that is a big one that is um, th- that we can really help with because 
our horses all come from race connections who want them to have that second career. They, they want to see them be successful, even if they weren't successful on the racetrack. Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that's so important to continue to talk about because I think sometimes in this situation, it's easy to kind of maybe like villainize that area of the industry where you're, you're maybe hearing those uh, scenarios as kind of the minority of more of the minority of the racing world um, where it seems like the more I hear about the the racing community and people who are within the community that are connected to centers like yours is that they they still really are looking out for the horse and making sure that they're keeping tabs of the horse going into a good program or a loving home after. Absolutely. Um, it, we wouldn't be here without the racing industry. You know, we saw a need to be able to support the racing industry, and I think that we try to do a very good job of that. We have several that are are return donors because they want to see those horses go on and, and be successful. And it's really been important that in the last few years specifically that aftercare has really become a forethought in the racing industry and not an afterthought. Um, because a lot of racehorses have a very short lifespan as a racehorse, but they can have they still have a very long lifespan. So it's it's nice to be able to match those horses with an adopter who understands their needs and is willing to work through anything that those horses may need. Right, definitely. yeah, it's it's very interesting to think about the idea um that, a lot sometimes horses are barely even started at the age that racehorses have already completed an entire career. Absolutely. It's um and a lot of horses, you know, don't mature physically right. um, for a very long time. And a lot of very big thoroughbreds are don't necessarily make great racehorses because they do take a little while right. to mature. So it's nice when somebody recognizes that, okay, this horse isn't going to make a racehorse, but I really want to see it go on and and live a great life. We've had syndicates that have sent us horses before, and they have several owners that may not necessarily be horse people, but they, you know, they're they're excited about the industry and they they want to own a piece of a racehorse. And they've watched that horse race and have have now seen it go into an aftercare. And now they're just as excited when they get updates about what their horse is doing after its racing career as they were when it was winning on the racetrack. So, so cool. it's um it's nice to be able to um to be able to reach out to to the race connections and say, hey, this horse is moving to such and such a state and this is the life that it's going to lead and the people love it and and things are going great. And I think that's something that really sets the Secretariat Center apart from a lot of other aftercare organizations because there are a lot of a lot of organizations doing a lot of good we in particular um, reach out to our adopters every year so before july we will have reached out to all of our previous horses that have been adopted and just check in on them how are things going um you know send us some photos make sure that the horses uh, minimum standards of care are at least being met even if they're say retired or something like that so 
it's nice to be able to reach out. And now we're getting so that a lot of our adopters are excited when they hear from us to be able to tell us about what their horse is doing at, the, at this time. Have you ever needed to fly your horse somewhere? The partners of Equijet have been well-established in the competitive horse world for over 20 years and have been in the import and export business for more than 15. With lifetime passions of riding, training, and taking care of horses, Equijet's expertise and knowledge of the nuances of equine travel are just unparalleled in the business. They really understand that comprehensive and clear logistical solutions to shipping needs are of the utmost importance, and they ensure that your horses are headed to their final destination with the proper documents, safety, of course, at all times. At Equijet, they are horse people first, dedicated to the well-being of your horse in transit and to its destination in top condition. Equijet's top priority is shipping your horses safely and with the highest amount of service, and their team is absolutely committed to professionalism, detail, and timeliness. So to find out more about Equijet and how they could be helpful for your shipping needs, you can visit their website at equijet.com. That's E-Q-U-I-J-E-T.com. Thank you so much, Equijet, for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's get back to the episode. Do you have a specific time frame? Gen- obviously, I know each horse is a case-by-case scenario, but do you have kind of a general time frame that you keep horses in your program for? I would say the least amount of time that we usually have a horse in is about three weeks, which it I don't think is enough time, but sometimes it just depends on where the horse is in his retraining. Um, three weeks would be the absolute probably minimum and the, we've had horses as long as three to six months. Okay. And obviously you're in a major racing hub, but are horses coming from all over the country? Sure. Actually, I had one ship in, uh, last week from Florida. Um, I've gotten a couple from Florida. We've gotten some from Louisiana. Um, and then a lot are in the surrounding areas or a lot have raced, um, you know, have come from California and have raced and their race connections maybe have a farm locally and that horse got some letdown time. So they, you know, it, it finished its racing career. They took it to their farm and either, um, did any, Um, rehab or turnout for a couple of months before they called us and sent it to us. Got it. As far as kind of figuring out, let's say you get a horse, you didn't get a ton of maybe like direction from the previous owner as far as what they would think that it would be good at for a future job. What do you kind of do to determine what kind of job a horse would be suitable for? Do all the horses follow a similar training program? Yes, um, we actually have a resident trainer. Her, she's actually our equine program director, and she oversees all of the training and care of our horses when they, from the time they come in until the time they leave. We work very closely together. We work together actually for years, and she really kind of has an idea of. Uh, of where she wants to start. It usually starts with quite a bit of groundwork to make sure that the horse um, is paying attention to um, to see how he or she reacts to stimuli, to kind of stimul- simulate some situations that the horse may have under saddle so that we have a pretty good idea of what things are going to be like once we actually get on their back and kind of see where they are. So um, just teaching them to, you know, move away from pressure, to trust their to trust their handler, 
And then we can kind of get an idea of what they're going to be good at and what um, and, and how they're going to react to the things that we ask them to do. Do you have some situations where you take horses through this process and then you, you determine, you know what, maybe, maybe like a retirement or like a lower like stress level job is the, the kind of like next step for this horse. Do you have certain places that you are kind of like your go-to places where you can retire horses or what, what does that look like? Absolutely. We work with a lot of organizations in the area that maybe specialize in horses that aren't going to have a second career. Typically, the horses that we bring in are able to at least have some sort of, even if it's a light riding career. I mean, maybe they are just going to be a trail horse or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, maybe they have a previous injury that um, that jumping would potentially cause re-injury or something along those lines. So we try to, we still try to find them an adoptive home, but we're very transparent about what limitations we think these horses may have in the future and try to find an adopter who is comfortable with those sorts of issues. I mean, all horses, we know all horses have something. And it just depends on the adopter as to what they're comfortable with. Uh, one of the things that we really focus on, and this sounds so silly, but racehorses have never been mounted using a mounting block. Yeah. They have no True. idea what the mounting block is. And some of them get very, um, very concerned when you stand on the mounting block and you go to get on because all of a sudden you're now taller than them and they've never had that before. Mm-hmm. So we spend a lot of time making sure that the horse will walk up to the mounting block and stand quietly to be mounted. And it, it's really, it, it's interesting because a lot of adopters, when they come to try these horses and to meet these horses, if they don't stand quietly, they're nervous about riding them or they, they perceive that as some sort of a, a you know, a bad behavior. So sure. we work a lot to make sure that those horses walk up to the mounting block and that they're comfortable with somebody walking on the mounting block, putting their foot in, getting on, adjusting their stirrups, and that they stand quietly while we do that. So it's just something that it's you you don't think about until you start having people come to to try your horses and realize that well you're right it doesn't stand and it doesn't bother us because we're used to getting on while moving away from the mounting block but now um we spend a lot of time on and off on and off on and off so that the horse says oh well i guess that's no big deal mhm yeah um, a, but it's really just practice point. yeah um what would you say is the process cuz obviously you have many horses going in, coming out. How do you go about vetting your adopters? We have an entire process for our adopters. So first they complete an adoption application and they tell us everything from how big they want their horse, how old they want their horse, what color they really want to what their future goals are, what their past equine experience is. Um, and kind of get all of that information. And then they're also required to submit photos of where the horse will be living so that we can talk to them about, you know, fencing and, and care and so that, so that we can kind of help fill in the gaps of, of what the horse is used to versus what it may be moving into a situation. 
So they, so they complete their adoption application um, and fill out all of that information. And then they also submit photos showing where the, the horse will be living. They can submit additional photos of them riding and video and that sort of thing if they would like. And then we also require three um, letters of recommendation from a, a veterinarian, from an equine professional, and from a personal reference. Tell me about an area of the industry that you are passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about. I would say that thoroughbreds can't be competitive in some of the the arenas that they always used to be very competitive in um, Mm -hmm. or that they can't necessarily compete against a warm blood or or, or a quarter horse or whatever somebody, whatever somebody happens to be competing on. I think that there are some that certainly wouldn't necessarily fit that job description, but I think that there are a lot of horses that really do. Actually, I was, I was talking with friends the other day and, and they said, well, you know, I just don't have the money to go buy a warm blood. And so, but I, I don't want to go to big horse shows because I feel like I can't compete against them because a thoroughbred's just not as competitive. And I said, well, you know, mine was. I showed in the adult hunters all over the country for years. And now he's 25 now. But um, but but he was very competitive. And they said, well, yeah, but yours was a freak. And I said, well, maybe. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, we see probably 50-some horses go through here in a year. And I would say there are several that could be very competitive in, in the right home and mm-hmm. in the right career. So it just, I think it just depends on, it's like every horse, they're, they're all individuals and it, it just kind of depends. What are some of your favorite success stories that kind of stick out in your mind from the Secretariat Center? We have had, um, we've actually, we've had several. It's hard to, um, it's hard to pick. We've really gotten so that our adopters become like family and we get updates all all the time. Um, I get texts all the time with videos that, oh, look, I cantered for the first time today. Or look, he jumped his first jump. Um, but um, some of our favorites, uh, we had a horse named Cowboy Rhythm who was racing here in the U.S. and was claimed and was taken to Puerto Rico to race. And then his racing connections, once he... Um, retired from racing in Puerto Rico, went and bought him back and brought him back and rehabbed him here in the States and, well, here in the continental U.S. and um, ended up calling us and saying, you know, he's sound and he's ready for a home and, and would you take him and find him an adoptive home? And we ended up finding him the perfect home and he is now living happily in South Carolina with his adopter and her, her three girls who are all under eight. And she said she has to wait in line to be able to ride him now because the girls <laughs> all want to do the riding. Cute. Oh, I love <laughs> we it. We get pictures of tiny little girls, you know, brushing this big giant horse and, um, and he's just so kind and so sweet. So, um, so we love getting updates from him. We have others who have adopted and send us updates all the time, but then come back and volunteer and, and bring their horses 
uh, back for the retired racehorse project and stay with us. Like I said, we had one that was in his adoptive home's uh, wedding <laughs> um, this year. So we um, we have so many that ones that have gone on to do therapy that are just really in a, a noble career now, even though they might not necessarily be in the show ring, they're, mm-hmm. they're really doing good. What are some of the biggest challenges of running the Secretariat Center? And for people interested, how can they learn more, become a part, or support it? Really, uh, challenges, of course, were the challenges with everybody um, the last couple of years with decreased travel and um, the inability to to welcome visitors. But um, but now it's you know things things are getting um, a little easier, and we love welcoming people to the property. We um, they could support in any way from donations to even just following us on social media. Um, filling out their application, um, telling friends that are looking for a new horse to look at our website and see what we've got. I think that's, um, that's important to, to keep an eye on the website because I always say, well, if you wait to fill out your application until you see the perfect horse, odds are pretty good that somebody else is, is going to end up adopting that horse that's already approved before you. So, so Uh, get that application in because it's good for three years. And, um, and then when the perfect horse comes along, you can kind of be first in line for it. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's really been fun to be able to match horses with riders. And, and I wouldn't say that we necessarily do that. We kind of let the horses do that. So the horses say, you know what, I'm coming home with you. And so it's, um, it, it's, it's pretty fun to watch the horses really come out of their shell and, and, and find comfort in their adopters. Well, Shelly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk a little bit about the Secretariat Center. I think what you're doing there is so amazing and so helpful for our industry to just raise awareness and to physically be rehoming these horses so that they can continue to live happy and fulfilling lives and make huge impact in their new owners' lives too. So I have loved following the journey of the Secretariat Center. Um, So thank you so much and I wish you all the best. Thank you. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.